Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 156 of the podcast for August 16th, 2012. My guest for this episode is a friend of mine, Mike Steckline. He's currently the director of network operations for the Healthcare Value Network, where uh, Mike and I used to work together when I was uh, involved there through the Lean Enterprise Institute. Well, our conversation is about Mike's reflections on meeting uh, the the great quality guru and leadership guru, Dr. Deborah Edwards Deming, back in the late 1980s. And Mike uh, volunteered and participated with Dr. Deming uh, and his uh, really well-known four-day workshops that took place around the country. So Mike, uh, in this conversation, thinks back to you know the lessons that he learned from Dr. Deming's teachings applied within his own uh, life and uh, for his family. There's some really cool stories that he has. And we'll talk about the application in modern-day organizations and healthcare and other settings and how Dr. Deming's teachings um, are and, and I think especially should be a big part of the lean movement because of the uh, the connections and the influences from Dr. Deming. So I hope you enjoy the episode. You can go to leanblog.org slash 156. And in the show notes, I have a link to a blog post that Mike wrote with a picture um, from back in the day with uh, Mike and the great Dr. Deming. So I hope you enjoy that. And as always, thanks for listening. Well, again, our guest today is Mike Steckline. Thanks for being here. Well, you're welcome. Glad to help. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot. We're going to be talking about your experiences with Dr. Deming, but I want to start off before you introduce yourself as you sort of kicked things off at the, uh, the, the Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit earlier this year. Why are we here today to do a podcast? Well, we're here to, to learn and to have fun, certainly. Well, yeah, I hope so. And, and I I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself and your background, uh, but if you can kind of tell a little bit more of that story, you know, of, uh, how Dr. Deming um, introduced his um, seminars and, and workshops. So if you can start, Mike, by telling the audience a little bit about some of your background. You've done a lot of things in the world of quality and, and healthcare. Um, tell people a little bit about that place. Sure. Well, thanks, Mark. Uh, years ago, when I first started, I was a, an orderly. Uh, my mom was a nurse and got the idea that perhaps healthcare might be interesting. Uh, found a way to pursue that by going into the Navy, joined the Navy, and, and learned about being a medical technologist, and um, realized that uh, I could continue to work in the laboratory, but found myself up against a lot of issues and system problems and thought that perhaps I needed to get into management. And so it was when I made the transition from uh, California to Madison, Wisconsin in the middle 80s, that I uh, learned about uh, Dr. Deming, uh, not through uh, school, uh, because they currently weren't teaching it in the classes, but at the time, Dr. Deming uh, had gained more popularity, and he was in Madison to kick off the Madison Area Quality Improvement Network and to be a keynote speaker. And one of the professors from the uh, graduate school, a statistician, uh, decided that uh, it would be a good opportunity for me to meet someone who he just uh, thought was great, and uh, I learned about Dr. Deming. At the time, his book, uh, The Out of the Crisis, was just being published, so that mm -hmm. gives you a little bit of an idea about 1986 uh, when this occurred. And then I had the good fortune over about a nine-year period to 
um, ask him questions, both in person, but also write him letters, and he always wrote back. And then uh, he was uh, looking for people to help out with his four-day seminars, not he personally, but the organization that was running them. And I was always interested in seeing how I could convince someone to let me go do that, and that's how I... um, learned a lot about what he was really talking about, and I think I was just starting to get a glimmer of it before he passed away in 1993, but I had some great opportunities to ask him some questions that a lot of people didn't get a chance to do and had a lot of chance to uh, observe him in action when he would uh, uh, consult with clients, so it was a great opportunity. Well, it sure sounds like it, and you know, when, when I get a chance to talk to someone like yourself who had firsthand experience with Dr. Deming. Um, it's always fascinating to hear about those direct interactions. Uh, you know, my, I first learned of Dr. Deming. My my dad, when he was working at Cadillac and General Motors, went through one of um, was was quite an enthusiastic participant in one of Dr. Deming's famous four day seminars. Um, but you know, my experience has been just through videos and Dr. Deming's books. Um, so you. The, back to the, the question I asked originally, can you tell a little bit about the story of how Dr. Deming would start his seminars? Because I, I think there's an impression that, you know, he was a very serious man or, you know, people hear um, stories of, you know, like in my dad's, you know, he's now retired. So I guess I can tell the story. You know, Dr. Deming somewhat chewing out the senior leaders um, right. at, at Cadillac. And I mean, you know, he's a serious man with a serious mission. But, you know, to say that that part of the purpose was was to have fun. Um, t- can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. It seemed like every time he opened a session, whether it was with a large group or a small group, he would uh, make the point that he would ask, so why are we here? And he would always pause. And sometimes people would offer answers, and he would comment on that. And he said, um, I believe we're here to learn, but we're also here to have fun. And he would go into uh, joy in work and how we should enjoy our work and how we should enjoy uh, learning. And I think he was trying to impress upon people that for some reason people have thought that they could stop learning at a certain age. And at a, at a point in time, uh, learning was not something that uh, they needed to do. And so he was always trying to impress upon uh, everyone, the importance of um, taking joy in their work and uh, joy in learning. And I, he really did enjoy uh, learning every day. He Every time that I saw him, he was writing notes and putting them in his to suit pockets, and he was learning. And so people thought they were learning from him, but he was learning from them. And uh, so he always wanted to emphasize that uh, we were here to learn, but also to have fun. Mm-hmm. And when I had the opportunity to kick off the um, the summit this past year at the Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit, we were going to be talking about experimentation and the experiments around our network. And I thought I would use that as an opportunity to remind everyone that we were there to learn, but also to have fun. And I think that's a, a great goal, and I think that was very much the case at, at the summit. Um, just as a quick detour and in terms of introductions um, and, and for the listeners, uh, a lot of people might know in terms of disclosures that I used to work as an employee of the Lean Enterprise Institute and was involved um, very deeply with the Healthcare Value Network the first two years of its um, existence. But Mike, can you, for people who don't know about the Healthcare Value Network, can you just give kind of a brief introduction to that collaboration and, and also talk a bit about what your role is? Sure. Well, the Healthcare Value Network is a collection of approximately 56 organizations now in the United States and Canada, and these are healthcare organizations that are interested in learning and applying 
lean principles in healthcare, and uh, it is the, the first experiment of the Theta Care Center for Healthcare Value that uh, found that organizations that were trying to apply these concepts could benefit from connecting with each other and learning from each other, and at the same time also learning from industry. So we try to pr provide opportunities to, for them to learn directly from other industries, but also to learn how they're making that translation from industry to healthcare. And so our job is to help them to learn, share, and connect with each other so that everyone's transformation gets accelerated. My role is the director of the network, and so it's my responsibility to optimize that system, using Dr. Deming's terminology, mm -hmm. is to try to help those organizations get as much as they can from their interactions and to provide them with the best possible um, possibilities of accelerating their transformation. Well, thanks for giving that background, Mike. And, um, you know, kind of bringing things back to your experiences with um, Dr. Deming. Um, recently, you wrote um, a blog post on, on your Tumblr site, and I'll, I'll link to this in um, the show notes. I mean, you wrote about a story involving uh, your son, Jerry, when he was in the fifth grade, um, learning about red beads. Can, can you tell the listeners that story? I think it was a really good, really great story. Yeah. Well, when, when Dr. Deming would do his four-day seminars, he would always do the, the lessons of the red beads, and uh, no one could do it like him. And he would um, explain about the problems of people not understanding variation, and he would also connect it to psychology and how it affected people and driving out intrinsic motivation, uh, using extrinsic motivation. And so at the time, our family was starting to uh, pursue homeschooling, and our oldest kid, uh, Jerry, was then in the fifth grade. He had been in the uh, uh, private school system for a while, and we were making the transition to um, homeschooling. And I had the opportunity to demonstrate the Red Bead Factory to him and a couple of his friends because we were starting our homeschooling enterprise. and. Mm -hmm. They were really uh, affected by it because some of them I fired and some of them I promoted, just as Dr. Deming would do. And, of course, it wasn't anything to, that ha they had anything to do about it. It right. was all about the system. And so then we talked about it, just as Dr. Deming would talk about it. And we realized that this was a lot of the problem with education, too, that uh, grades, ranking, and rating um, that was going on in companies was also being pursued in school. And so Jerry and I had an opportunity to write a paper, which we did, uh, and it was published by the American Association of um, uh, School Administrators back in the time. It was called What Do Grades Mean? And it had to do with the lessons of the bead factory applied to education. And in the paper, we quoted Dr. Deming, and I told Jerry, you know, perhaps uh, you should write a letter to Dr. Deming getting his approval to use his quote. And, of course, Jerry didn't readily want to do that, but I said, you know, it would be a good assignment for homeschooling. So uh, we did it. He wrote the letter and, wrote, and hand wrote it, and Dr. Deming wrote back. It was a great letter, not a long response, but he essentially said, I think that uh, uh, you, the paper by you and your dad is great, and you have my permission to use the citations. And uh, still have a copy of that letter. And uh, mm. so it was really quite the uh, effect on Jerry just to realize that he could uh, reach out to someone of this prominence, but also that he was on to something really important about, you know, there are problems with grading, ranking, and rating. And it was a pretty permanent uh, experiment experience in his, in his lifetime. 
not many people had a chance to have that sort of interacting with Dr. Deming. And it was my understanding that at one of the last four-day seminars that Dr. Deming did, and he was really quite frail at the time, and I don't have uh, video or audio proof of this, mm-hmm. but someone later told yeah. me that at the four-day seminar, when they got to the lessons of the four of the red beads, uh, Dr. Deming slowly stood up and and uh, I'll just paraphrase it mm-hmm. a little bit. He, he said something such as, young Jerry Steckline, nine years old, he understands the lessons of the red beads, why can't you? <laughs> and, of course, most of the crowd didn't really understand <laughs> right. what he was talking about, but you know, the fact that he was pointing out that here's a youngster that understood the fallacy of reacting to variation and the, pro- the problems of ranking and rating and grading um, was really also quite quite profound and uh, was very happy to see that, you know, that had come a full circle. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like with a lot of the, the teachings and lessons from Dr. Deming's work, it's it's almost easier to learn it when you're young than it is to unlearn all of the, you know, maybe kind of, you know, decades worth of habits that people have uh, from from business school, and I, you know, I say this with an MBA hanging on the wall here, but you know, I mean, the, you know, I've worked, I was exposed to Dr. Deming at a relatively young age, not, not as young as Jerry, but you know, have that, some of that context before going to business school, and and uh, you know, I think you know that's where it's maybe tougher for executives that don't ex- didn't weren't getting exposed to this until they were in their 40s or 50s or uh, or even older. Like you said, Dr. Deming apparently kept learning, but um, a lot of times people in leadership roles. Um, don't do that, sadly. But um, well, they they were strongly affected by the system longer. Jerry was um, stopped his effect mm-hmm. from the education system by fifth grade. Uh, he continued on, went to graduate school, never uh, attended high school. It was homeschooling. He went to college, and he didn't live under the prevailing style of grading and in schools and missed a lot of that. And but you're right, Mark. A lot of uh, people have not had the experience of living without. Some of the assumptions Dr. Deming called them the mythology of management. Mm-hmm. And it was the mythology of the way that uh, things had to run. There's no rule that says you need grades. There's no rule that says you need a lot of things. Yet we seem to live in the system that assumes that that was a given, and it, and it wasn't. Yeah. Well, I'm re- reminded of um, Dr. Deming's words. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but something like, you know, we created this prison of our management system. When we can right. create, we can create a different system. The, the, right. you know, the tyranny of, uh, you know, annual reviews and force rankings and quotas and slogans and things like that that are, are so common. Yeah, toward the end of his lifetime, he was using terms such as the um, the mystery, mystery of the prevailing style of management. He said it was more mysterious than the mythology of New Guinea. Uh, someday we may understand, you know, how um, false that mythology was, but he called it the mythology of management. Mm-hmm. Now, in in your your blog post, you you wrote about how you know, your exposure exposure to Dr. Deming's lessons changed your life, not just professionally but personally. You know, you talk about your your son uh, Jerry and and the early exposure he had. What what are some other ways that that philosophy kind of found its way into your everyday life? Well, whenever you react to something. Um, you think about it and you say, so was that due to common cause or was that due to special cause variation? And of course, when you're trying to explain that to people that aren't familiar with it, you have to step back and, and uh, explain a little bit about what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, when, when our kids, again, our kids were younger and we were talking about the use of um, 
extrinsic motivation and how it drives out intrinsic motivation. Um, one time, we were also reading the works of Alfie Cohn and talking right. about um, the problems with extrinsic motivation and how it stamps out uh, joy in learning and joy in work. And our kids were young, and and, um, and we were talking about this. And my, my wife paraphrased Dr. Deming. Instead of saying pay is not a motivator, she said pizza is not a motivator. <laughs> and uh, so we were, you know, it became quite embedded into our conversations when we, we talked about so what what is really motivating people and how do you, try to use the intrinsic motivation as, a, as opposed to resorting to extrinsic motivation. So whether it was school, home, you know, getting people to try to do the chores around the house or whatever, uh, a lot of the times those conversations came back that says, so what intrinsically could we do to, or well, how could we tap into intrinsic motivation as opposed to resorting to, you know, sticks and carrots to try mm-hmm. to get people activated and to comply, and whether you're ch- it's children or kids. And then it would show up in other areas where we would have our conversations on other things that we were learning with the homeschooling world or beyond in, in high school and college and beyond. It, it sticks with you. It sticks with you forever. Yeah, and it's it's hard to shake. I mean, you know, these are fairly you know, foundational mental models that I think people carry around. If, if you understand common cause versus special cause, it's, it's hard, like I said, hard to get that out of your mind. I mean, one, I think, you know, personal example I've tried to be better about is in the course of, um, you know, the travel. Um, I very rarely get upset anymore at an individual, uh, let's say, airline employee, because I realize and, you know, have a better understanding now than when I was younger that they work within a system. And, you know, right. um, they're the, uh, you know, the, the, they're in front of you and, and you see sometimes people in airports getting very upset and blaming, you know, that airline employee when they're working within the constraints of policies or decisions their, their senior leaders have made. Or I've even seen, you know, not, I think I've learned to not blame individual employees for being grumpy when you learn, you know, in the case of our, you know, local uh, hometown airline, American Airlines, of what, you know, senior leaders have done to their employees over decades in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, um, kind of, you know, very broadly speaking, mistreating them. Um, of course, people are going to be grouchy. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of worth looking and say, well, you know, sadly, that com- that that grouchiness is common cause as, a, as opposed to special cause, but it's created by a system. And what we're learning is, uh, and this is through a lot of the work that we're doing uh, in collaboration with the Shingo Prize here at the Healthcare Value Network, is to understand that uh, systems drive behaviors. It's mm-hmm. what Dr. Deming talked about is, is the system is the thing that causes people to be grouchy. So what is it about the system that's driving the behaviors? And so what Dr. Deming talked about 20, 30 or more years ago uh, still is viable, and, and we're resurfacing these things now, and we're understanding, uh, and you're, you're exactly right. When you see someone behave a certain way, it's probably a lot more respect for the individual to say, so what is the system that mm-hmm. is causing that person to behave that way as opposed to saying, well, you really shouldn't behave that way. Yeah. Um, now, bringing things back to healthcare, and you know, I run across a lot of people who are at least you know, somewhat familiar with with Dr. Deming's name, if if not some of his teachings. You know, people you run into have been in healthcare quality for a long time, and uh, you know, there's there's clear influences of Dr. Deming's philosophy in lean and the Toyota production system. You know, Toyota leaders will 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 tell you how influenced they they were by 
Dr. Deming's teaching and work. Um, how, how do, what are your thoughts? Um, you, you blogged about this a little bit, so I'll ask you, I mean, what, what Dr. Deming's view might be today on how quote unquote lean healthcare is evolving? Well, he always had some, some interesting observations about healthcare and, and, um, uh, course, and out of the crisis, he couched it as one of the, the deadly diseases that the ex excessive cost of health care is one of the problems that Western management has. And when people would ask him about how his concepts could provide to health care, I think he always was hopeful, but uh, I think he realized that uh, there was a strong prevailing style of management that had to do with how uh, uh, health care has been organized. Uh, years ago when they said we'll have the administrators do this and we'll have the doctors do this and neither the two shall meet, you know, that's a pretty strong um, infrastructure you put in place. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to get people to think about, so what is the system and how do we improve the system, there's a lot of unlearning that has to occur as far as how do you work together when the system has basically been designed to have keep people apart. And so I'm very enthused. I, I'm encouraged by what I see as far as uh, people looking at value streams and understanding how do you work across uh, silos. I think uh, a lot of the work that Jim Womack has pointed out that we need to pursue with horizontal thinking in healthcare is is exactly right on. I think the work that Dr. Toussaint and others trying to describe the problems with uh, what he calls uh, white coat uh, leadership and whether you were a clinician or an administrator, you were taught that you had to be right. You had to control, and I think that there's a realization that you have to learn, you have to be a coach, and you have to be humble that you don't know everything and you can't know everything. And so I think there are a lot of things that are coming around, and we can point directly back to some of the things that Dr. Deming was trying to teach people, whether it was with his system of profound knowledge and the four components and how they interact or his 14 points, which are a natural outcome of those, uh, mm -hmm. the system of profound knowledge. But I think it's all there for the learning and the application. And so I'm very encouraged. And I, I really do try to connect people back to the, to the fundamental theory because I think when we understand the principles, we can design the systems and we can use the tools and we can even invent new tools. So I, I do, I am encouraged by that, but I, I do think people have to remember that there is a philosophy behind what we're doing, and it's more than um, just putting together a tool or, or um, you know, repeating what you saw someone else do in yeah. order to get results. Yeah, and, that, and that's one thing I, I really appreciate about the evolution of the Shingo Prizes model, um, you know, to, to better incorporate the idea of principles and and behaviors, um, you know, John Toussaint does a great job of, of talking about, you know, his own personal transformation of um, his leadership style and approach and, and, and talking about the power of um, humility. And, you know, that's one thing I, I was just reading. And an aside, there's a, a fairly new book out called Toyota by Toyota, um, written by a number of people who used to work or, or still work at different Toyota sites in the U.S. And, you know, that that humility come that you know, comes through so strongly in the book of that being such a, you know, a primary uh, characteristic of, of successful leaders. And, you know, that kind of flies. Um, you know, it's one of those things that's easy to understand, but maybe hard to put in place. You can't certainly, you know, uh, have an extrinsic motivation or a quota on someone's humility that if you're not humble, we're going to ding you in your annual performance review. I guess we right, want right. to uh, um, take take that approach. But yeah, I, I would agree. Those are 
positive trends. But yeah, I, I, my view, and I'm curious to hear your reaction to this. I mean, I think some of the underlying assumptions such as, well, you know, industry does annual performance reviews. So therefore, for our hospital to be more successful, we need to embrace the annual performance review and job rankings if we if you know, a lot of hospitals already have that in place um, and, and, and that causes problems and, and dysfunctions as, as doc, Dr. Deming and others wrote about. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time talking with people about Kaizen and continuous improvement and, you know, leaders will say, well, yeah, of course you want people improving, but, you know, very often people come right back to, well, should we set a quota for the number of Kaizen improvements or, you know, uh, how, how do we, how do we force that? And um, it's interesting to try to steer the conversation back to, what you were describing with um, intrinsic motivation, how do we tap into that? So curious to hear yeah, those, your reactions. Those, those forces are really strong, and they've been with us for years. I paid a visit to one of our organizations, and they showed me some improvements that they had made in uh, the time that it takes to get operating rooms ready for the next surgery. And they had a control chart that was impressive mm-hmm. uh, that That's showed a good a downward sign. movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great. And then it, it made a downward movement, and then it was stable, um, and it continued to be stable. And so I, so I said, so what's next? And they looked puzzled. Um, and so my impression was they had a good uh, story about what done looked like, but they didn't have a story to tell about what better and better looked like, and this mm-hmm. whole notion of trying to get better and better. And so I asked, so how how quickly could things be done between rooms and what would be the benefit of that? And it just seemed like a foreign concept that um, they could actually go beyond what they had said their goal was. And um, so, yeah, I think those forces are strong that says we go so far and then we're done. And this notion of, well, we could get better and better, and there's benefit to that, is um, something that we're really going to have to to work on. And the the forces that got us the system that that told us that once we meet our goal and we're done, uh, again, we've been at it for years, and a lot of it goes back to school when people said, what's going to be on the test? And when they ask that question, they're only interested in, so what's good enough? Mm. And so those forces go back years and years and years, and it's going to take um, some patience and time to undo some of those assumptions about what, what we need to do, which yeah. I think is what Dr. Deming was all about. He was always trying to get at the fundamental assumptions about why people think the way they do. Yeah. And um, Dr. Deming's influence was very clear in uh, some of the work of Dr. Don Berwick, who people um, hopefully know about from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and his time um, as the administrator of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, just today, um, we're recording this on August 13th. Um, I, I blogged again today about an article that Dr. Berwick published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1989. And one of the things he talked about was being careful with standards or, you know, um, he, I'll just read out of it. He said, you know, quality control engineers know that such floors rapidly become ceilings and that a company that seeks merely to meet standards cannot achieve excellence. And, um, you know, I think there's um, a, queer, a, a clear lineage in, in the thinking there. And, your, your story is a great one in terms of um, really striving to improve continually or continuously and, and not just being satisfied with meeting a benchmark or an internal goal. Um, I think it's one of those mindsets that hopefully we can keep pushing and, and, and keep trying to um, move things forward in healthcare. So um, we're, we're about out of time here. I'm, I'm curious to hear if you have any um, 
final thoughts or, or reflections, Mike, from kind of thinking back to your time being around and, and working with and corresponding with Dr. Deming, either, you know, kind of last lesson or a point to leave things with? Well, I hope people have a chance to go back to some of the original documents and books and videos that are available. And as they are pursuing what's currently being called lean in healthcare, I hope they can take some time and learn a little bit about some of the principles that are behind some of the tools mm -hmm. and the systems they're developing. I think the stronger people understand some of the theory and the principles, they're going to be a lot better able to um, make the kind of improvement that needs to be made. And uh, hopefully it will be more than uh, just imitating what they saw someone else do or, or doing what someone tells them to do. So I think that's also what Dr. Deming would encourage people if he was around today to try to continue to learn and mm -hmm. uh, think about why they do what they do and how could they do things even better. Well, it's a, a great thought. And Mike, thank you for um, sharing your reflections um, of your time with Dr. Deming, both in your, your Tumblr post and um, here on the podcast. It was great, really great being able to talk to you again and, and for the first time here on the podcast. Well, you're welcome, Mark. Anything I can do to help. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.